I am still absolutely convinced that human nature is, in essence, good, and that given half a chance and good education, good grounding, the right environment, the right opportunities for people from the youngest point of their lives, that people will grow up and, and be proud of doing the right thing for their families, for their communities, for the planet and so on. Absolutely passionate about that. If we, unless you do veer on that side of, of human nature, as in essentially good rather than essentially bad, very hard to track out a future for humankind. Welcome to Sustainable 178. Welcome yourself, old to Sustainable 178. How the devil are you? Well, this is a bit odd. We're recording this like a month in advance. So, uh, yes, you I may, was fine, thank you. You, you were fine in, in, in the middle of May when we recorded this. Yeah, absolutely yeah. spiffing. You? Oh, I was fine, and I hope I am still fine by the time this goes out. It's going to be a bit dark if I'm not. Uh, we are Sustainable. We are your chuckly, weekly, friendly little environment podcast, all about people and the planet, and why, despite everything being nosed, we can have a little chuckle about it. You could at least pretend to look interested when I say this bit. Every now and then, I'm it, looking we at are. a contrail, looking at a plane <laughs> in the sky. Chemtrail, five G chemtrails. Oh god, 5G it's a five. It's a five G chemtrail. Oh god, where's my tin hat? Yes, anyway, and what are we going to be having a chuckle about this week then, Al? Well, we are going to speak to someone very cool this week. It is a treat for anyone who knows anything about the environment world or cares about it. It's even more of a treat than speaking to Dave. We're speaking to Jonathan Porritt, who, for those who don't know, is sort of kind of godfather of the green movement in the UK. Uh, Yes, sort of set up the ecology party back in the day uh, what became the green party what became the green party did friends of the earth stuff done loads of amazing businessy stuff and now <laughs> is the founder director of uh, an organization called forum for the future and the author of a bunch of very very good books on a range of subjects mm. uh, one of which uh, is going to be coming out a couple of days after this is released and we're going to talk to him about that Yeah, his new book is called Hope in Hell, and it's his book basically about how, despite everything, he remains a profoundly optimistic dude about the state of the planet, and most importantly, the young people what are living in it. So it's a very, very cool book. We've had a look. It's a wonderful chat with a bloke that genuinely, I do not think I would be here doing this podcast were it not for Off Off, right? Because he wrote the book... um, what got me interested in all were this it stuff not in the first for place. off of were it not for off of him i would not be ear offering off of you uh, so it's all it's you know thank you very much we didn't even talk about the fact even talk about the fact that you know, if, if lives had gone a bit differently he would have been teacher at a school that i'd gone to because uh, he was originally a teacher at the school the big school next to the little school that i went to in white city when i was a kid so how about that there you go. Yes, it's a it's a fantastic chat, uh, and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, just the usual disclaimer, which I do these days, um, yep. 
which is that uh, unlike the feckless unemployed Dave, uh, I might be. I'll have you know, I might be neither. I might have loads of feck, and I might be employed uh, by the time you listen to this. It's 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 unlikely. I grant you. Given given everything, (laughs) both those things are unlikely. There's a possibility (laughs) that you might be earning some money, but let's not bank on it. Uh, But I, I still, um, well, at least as as we record, I I have a job and. the people who employ me are not accountable for the views that I express on this podcast. So if you've got any problems with anything that I say, take them up with me, not with the people for whom I work. Okay? Okay. Unfortunately for them, they are accountable for the stuff you say when you are at work. But I don't suppose they can do anything about that. <laughs> well, I mean, they can do something about that. The miracle they haven't done yeah, something about that. Can. <laughs> Should we get on with it? <laughs> yes, let's go. So, hello, Jonathan. Hi, nice to meet you both. Hello, hello, sir, Jonathan. Our first, I think, our first night of the realm. That's your first mistake of this entire interview, because you will also know, <laughs> being incredibly well-researched, that I do not <laughs> use my sir, OK? You've got off on a really bad yeah. note there, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to ask. Do, do you want, there do you want to start times, again? There must be times when you're, when you're on the tube or something and you can't get a seat. And you just say, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you bloody well know who I am. That doesn't work too well, it has to be said. <laughs> does, does a lockdown Zoom meeting automatically recognise a, a, a sir and give you a slightly bigger window? Uh, no, none of that stuff. No, no, there are very few perks associated with it whatsoever. And since I don't use it, that's hardly surprising. It was, <laughs> it was a hereditary title from my dad and uh, it's nothing to do with me. So uh, well, that's unfair. It's something I'm very proud of on behalf of my father. And my mother said she would disinherit me if I didn't um, take the title. So I took the title, but don't use it. So there you go. It's a bit of a family mishmash. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Go on. He hasn't got shit all over him. For, for anybody who, who doesn't know, and I think it's unlikely that many people listening to this podcast won't know who you are or a little bit about you, but some might not. Um, would you mind just saying a little bit about your story uh, or your, your career, what you've done and um, what you're, where you've got to? Sure. It's quite a long story by now. Um, I was reminded of this the other day because I actually joined the Green Party in 1974 and joined Friends of the Earth um, just before that and Greenpeace. So it's, it's kind of been a long time. Um, first 20 years really from 74 through to the early 1990s were working essentially with the Green Party and with Friends of the Earth. So typical campaigning stuff, hopefully having an impact occasionally, losing a lot of battles along the way, a lot of frustration in those days. Um, And then from 1994 onwards, I shifted tack a bit. I was running out of steam in terms of the conventional campaigning approach. It was kind of wearing me down, didn't quite burn out, but I think probably began to think that I might if I didn't do things differently. So then decided to take on a kind of slightly crazy challenge of um, (laughs) trying to work with big business to persuade them that they had a lot of agency. They could be a power for good. And since 1994, I've been working a lot on that advisory role, either advising governments or businesses or local authorities, whatever it might be. Um, 
And that was the next 20 years. So now it's obviously these things go in 20 year chunks. So it's obviously time for an, another change now and do things a bit differently from now on. Because actually, because you did, I remember you uh, wrote a piece, well, it must have been, everyone was talking about it five, ten years ago now, when you basically said, look, I thought we could work with oil companies and convince them to save the planet and to hell with them, we can't, we're screwed. Um, and but So what's next? Are you, what, uh, working with children and small animals or what's <laughs> Never work with small animals. Uh, that is very good advice. I am working a lot more with young people and I am enjoying that enormously and hoping to put some of the experience that I've been lucky enough to acquire um, to help them as they get new organisations going, particularly in the climate campaigning space. And as the, um, the book that I'm bringing out at the end of June, which you know about, um, I'm definitely going to be moving into a much more campaigning-oriented role from now on because you can't any longer trust to the business-as-usual politics that environmentalism has consisted of so far. It hasn't done a bad job. I'm not one of those who spend the rest of their life trashing everything that the environment movement has done. I think that's just gratuitously stupid. But it hasn't achieved everything that we wanted to achieve, and we've got to look at it a bit differently, that's for sure. It was very interesting watching Extinction Rebellion at the end of 2018 when they were just getting going. Um, and they clearly felt they had to position themselves, essentially, by criticising every single thing that any environmental organisation or climate change organisation had ever done and totally disparaging uh, coverage of the, of the 40, 50 years of, of green engagement and you could see they were doing that to say we're going to do this differently and we're the new game in town so the first one of the first organizations that xr um occupied was greenpeace the first time there was two of us and we saw the chief executive of greenpeace and asked him to commit to mass civil disobedience to deal with the climate emergency and he said greenpeace wouldn't be prepared to do that so we've come again today done a mini occupation that seems to have concentrated minds in the middle management at least and, and you know, they said quite, I thought quite nicely afterwards, just a friendly tap on the shoulder. But the idea was, you've had your moment in the sun and now we're going to shake this thing up and do it differently. Now, interestingly, when they launched their new strategy at the start of this year, much of that kind of dismissal of the green movement has gone. They're much more intent on finding constructive ways of working with people, even people who have been hammering away at the same things that they're hammering away at now, um, wanting to work in much more collegiate ways, share agendas, etc., etc., and a different tone, less hectoring, less superior, much more saying, whoa, this is one hell of a difficult story and we better work well together to make it work. So I can see why people default to relatively knee-jerk criticism of everything that's gone before. It, it, it doesn't help very much. We have to, you know, work much more effectively together now. When you were very briefly cantering through the things that you'd done, I feel you sold yourself short a little bit, if I may say so, <laughs> because you, your, your name is evoked as a kind of godfather of the environmental movement for loads of people. It was the, your, your book Seeing Green, which was, what, 40 years ago now? 50? How long ago was that? Uh, 1984. Uh, 
no, 40 years ago, 40, whatever that is. Uh, that was the first book about environmentalism I ever read, which made me feel like I want to get involved with this and spend the rest of my life doing it. I'd read like the Blue Peter Green Annual and stuff like that. That was cool. Yeah, that's but this cool. was the thing that actually, that was cool. But this was a book <laughs> that connected the stuff to the way systems work and how you have to get involved with politics and all of that. And when oh, we yeah. interviewed Caroline Lucas a couple of years ago, she said the same thing, right? So do you feel this kind of honour, which is what it is, um, do, do you recognise yourself as a kind of guru for the movement? Because you are, you know, modest chap, but you are that. <laughs> well, I do love the fact that Seeing Green has been influential in, in helping people get to a, a, a sort of stage of commitment in their own lives. And yeah, I, I take a lot of pleasure in the fact that Caroline Lucas regularly cites seeing green as the thing that kind of tipped her over into green politics, of course. I mean, for me, Caroline is the most amazing politician we have in the UK today and one of the most outstanding politicians globally. Um, so to have had a small part in her journey to this is a lovely thing. And yes, I don't mind thinking back to that because there'd been a lot about the environment stuff, of course, pre the 1980s, but mostly about conservation, mostly about environment in the classic sense of protecting things and all the rest of it. I think Seeing Green did open up new ground by going after the political side of this and trying to persuade a lot of environmentalists that they were unlikely to make much progress unless they thought much more about the political system in which they're campaigning, their environmentalism was being transacted. And I still think that is a really important part of it. For me, it's been central to my entire life as a a green activist, that you can't separate out the need to protect the natural world from the need to secure social justice, from the need to have really effective governance systems. You know, some people say, well, you're a mad keen enthusiast for proportion representation. What's that got to do with the environment? And you think, really? You just, if you don't get that, you don't really understand anything about how it is that these systems keep perpetuating themselves and keep causes like ours constantly in the margins. So I do feel pleased that I've, along the way, been able to make these connections and deepen some of the, the thoughts that people might have about that. And have, I guess the other thing I'm proud of, I guess, is that, that I'm, I've stayed true to that. That hasn't changed in my life. I've done many different things to, to um, try and crack this big nut, that's for sure. Um, some have worked, many haven't. But... I don't feel that I've departed from that early sense of the need for radical transformation that, that came to me in the early 1970s. Love you so much as Sniggers, I'm going straight back indoors. Your, your new book is called Hope in Hell. Uh, and we'll get on to uh, some of the specifics of it and, and um, in a sec, but... I just wanted to ask you about that first word because it's a big word. Well, it's a small word. It's not very letter letters at all, but it's a big word. And it means, I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I just wanted to sort of get a sense of what, for you, what you understood hope to mean. Um, and I note that there's there's quite a lot of Rebecca Solnit quoted in the yeah. in the book and her book it was in fact dave gave me dave gave me a book called hope in the dark by rebecca solnit which i found uh well it's an amazing piece of writing and it and it and it gets to the heart of uh of her version of of what hope is um but let's hear yours what what does it mean 
to you? <laughs> yeah, when I was starting to write the book, I actually sat down and look, looked at hundreds of different definitions of and people's perceptions of what hope means and and how important it is to them or how unimportant it is to them. I mean, I, I came across a lot of people who think that hope in today's climate emergency is a total illusion and anybody who dares talk about hope is essentially deliberately pulling the wool over people's eyes. So it's not a single view about the importance of hope. But personally, for me, hope is a precondition of remaining actively involved in campaigning activities. I would find it Honestly, probably impossible, but nearly, nearly impossible if I didn't think that there was still an opportunity to do what we have to do. I'm sure we'll come on and discuss what that is. If I didn't think that was still available to us, so I didn't have hope on that score, I would not be able to sustain the kind of work I do today. So I know it's a kind of precondition of my own ability to keep my own campaigning energies high. I don't manufacture hope because of that. It comes more easily, perhaps, than it does to some people. I do feel lucky in that regard. I have a kind of um, a hopeful predisposition. Whenever I'm thinking about something, I tend immediately to bank the really bad bits and then start thinking, OK, so that's just another confirmation of how really bad it is. Now what do we do about that? And I've been able to build that over, over the years, where obviously there have been literally limitless disappointments and moments where you sort of think whoa really still another year gone another decade gone in my case um here i am still saying some of the same things slightly differently that i might have been saying in the 1970s and i have i guess developed us a, a, a number of different ways of living with some of the pain of that um whilst focusing still on opportunities to help other people get through those moments of doubt, self-doubt, doubt, professional doubt, whether we're making any difference in our lives and so on. What, if you had to give advice to people who may listen to this show or indeed present this show, who uh, <laughs> occasionally feel a little bit blue about things, uh, what has worked for you in order to focus on the bigger picture? I mean, it's, it's lucky that you are, you're able to draw on reservoirs of hope. Yeah. Um, but, but are there techniques and tactics you can use do you think yeah uh, one thing i did uh, quite a long time ago now was uh, sort of manage my my inbox because it is so easy just to disappear into the depressing depths of everything that comes into one's inbox from an environmental point of view every day and um, the, the fortunate thing for me is Forum for the Future is about solutions. It's about working with people to help build solutions. So very quickly, I built up um, a way of accessing what was going on that was positive, energizing other people, um, providing solutions, breakthroughs, et cetera, et cetera. And I do try and keep that balance. I, I actually actively go out and find the things that are um, more uplifting and upbeat about the future than um, is a lot of the environmental stuff. And you can't turn away from that. It's a, it's a very gloomy prospect we're facing. It's truly gloomy. Is another one of those self-satisfied doors. Life. Don't talk to me about life. <laughs> the other thing which is for me personally, and I don't necessarily, I don't 
suggest this works for everybody, but it does matter to me that I can be out and about in the natural world. And um, I have always loved that opportunity to, to be in nature. I am a, um, a big tree hugger. And you might be a bit surprised to know that um, that right now in the middle of lockdown... Sorry? Does that mean you only hug big trees or or you you hug a lot of trees? It would be very very dangerous for me to hug small trees because um, I think it might put them them at risk. And anyway, I'm not... Leave the saplings alone. Exactly. And I don't fit any of these stereotypes, you see. I'm not green-fingered. If I try and do things in the garden, stuff dies. So that's all hopeless. So I like a big tree. <laughs> but in lockdown, they're just very close to us here. There's a, just the most staggeringly beautiful um, beech tree. And we've lived in this house for 30 years or so. And, and obviously I've got to know this beech tree really well over this time. And it has been a source of comfort. Everyone's going to think I've gone completely batty now. But anyway, it's been a source of comfort many times. But now, in this moment here, I've sort of fallen in love with this tree. It is a, it's an amazing thing. And watching it come into leaf, and actually day by day, sometimes twice a day, watching how the buds just change, 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 tiny bit, tiny bit. Boy, that's been um, pretty amazing. So I do rely on nature quite a lot it makes a difference to me and that i know that's not true of everybody but it's sort of helps me get a haircut hippie <laughs> we had a um a, a de- incredibly wholesome sort of morning a couple of weeks ago where uh with our, our three-year-old we started planting lots of vegetables and you know talking up what was going to happen and then sure enough the, the seeds started to to emerge and it's all very exciting and now we've had to rapidly explain why feeding the slugs vegetables is <laughs> is also fine um, and that we will probably still be feeding ourselves from the supermarket for the foreseeable <laughs> so, yeah, exactly exactly so, yes nature doesn't always do what you want it to do um is is your is your daughter do you say or son Son, son. Yeah. is your son a soil eater? Yeah, they're about, uh, we've got a, a nearly one-year-old as well uh, who uh, he just munches the stuff. Yeah, no, it is. Like, it's, it's it is amazing. amazing. It is amazing, and um, well, I love the fact that all the medical evidence has now come rowing in behind to, to say that the more you can encourage your infants to eat soil, the better it will be in terms of the way they build up their immune system and so on. I love that stuff when science catches up with just good, sensible, intelligent, instinctive behaviours. Right. Point of, cl- yeah. point of clarif- clarification at this point. You're not talking about on a plate, right? You're no, I don't about... I don't actively feed the children <laughs> soil. Um though, you know, we're recording this a few weeks before it goes out. Who knows how That's how true. the economy That's might true. <laughs> might go uh but no uh, when they we're lucky to have a garden and uh both kids spend a lot of their time face down in it um which is fine <laughs> as far as i'm concerned terrific more of it so speaking about the current situation if i read your book correctly the the epicenter of your current focus for hope is the coronavirus crisis which you uh portray as being not just you know, uh, this massive thing that's hitting the economy, but a you describe it as an unprecedented and unrepeatable opportunity for climate action that leaves you brimful of hope. Um, 
which is good news, I guess. Uh, we we did an episode of, of when the virus was just breaking out, and we said, look, we're not sure it could go either way, right? But you see it definitely as being a thing that is going to be how we save the planet, or not? I don't see it definitely as that, but I see that the prospects of us doing what we need to do are greater because of the coronavirus crisis than without it. And for a number of reasons. Firstly, this is such an utterly traumatic shock to the lives of well, almost literally everybody across the, the, the planet. Um, it means that people have accepted that sometimes things just totally have to be rethought and that when governments want to, governments can. And there is a, a power to transform our way of life, which previously would have been dismissed as out of hand, you know, usual stupid comments about where's your money tree and all that kind of stuff. But when we have to do something, actually, we can. We may do it well or not so well. In this case here in the UK, we're not doing it that well, but other countries have done it um, pretty well. The second thing is I do genuinely believe that some of the changes that have happened during the very short crisis so far, it's only three months if you think about it, we won't go back to previous behaviours. So I don't believe, for instance, aviation will ever recover in terms of what? its really? anticipated rate of growth of 6 to 7% per annum. I just don't believe it. Um, we work with a lot of businesses in Forum for the Future, and I tell you, they are all looking at the degree to which they have simply parked forever their notion of business travel. Whereas previously wow. they might have agreed, you've got to jump on a plane, do this meeting, go and inspect that factory, whatever it might be. That's just going to go. And I think business travel will be reduced by more than 50% permanently. Now, I'm not sure that domestic wow. travel is quite the same. I think people may well say after the horrors of coronavirus, we need to have some breathing space, get out, you know, discover new places we haven't been before just to have a holiday on the beach or whatever. So I'm not as hopeful that aviation will reduce there. But I don't think we'll ever see rates of growth of 6 to 7% as we were seeing before. Now, what that means is that we'll see a plateauing effect with aviation, and then technology can begin to kick in to actually reduce the total emissions from a reduced base for flying. I don't think commuting will ever be the same again. People have learned that it really isn't necessary to have these crazy commutes. We can mix and match. We can have hybrid work lives where sometimes we're at home, sometimes we're in the office. I think the people who are probably shitting themselves most sitting there in the property world in London at the moment are people who are responsible for letting office space. I don't know of a single company now that isn't thinking about implications for the amount of office space they need and ways of changing their ways of working. So I, don't, I think a lot of this isn't going to go back. The bit that I'm really hoping isn't going to go back is that people have reconnected when they had a chance to do so with the natural world. And why, why would we lose that? Why would we suddenly become indifferent again to the natural world, having now experienced it a bit more directly? Um, I'm conscious that's a difficult one to articulate because there are an awful lot of people in this country who have been locked down in conditions where the natural world is out there somewhere, but they're not seeing it in a, a small flat and unable to share any of, their, of, that, of those benefits. So that's a bit of a partial one. So there's all that stuff. 
And for me, there's also, I think, now a readiness to accept that the climate emergency is bearing down upon us, could have as big an impact, if not a much worse impact on all our lives than COVID-19. And when we call it an emergency, we have to respond proportionately to that emergency. So I'm more hopeful on account of COVID-19 than I was before. But that isn't really the, epi you described it, James, the epicenter of my hope. That isn't quite right. It's a kind of been a, a bolstering effect for me um, because it's, it's, it, you know, it has helped me see differently how we can do the politics of climate change. So talk to us about the, the, the elephant in the room then with all of this, which, well, I guess one of them, but, uh, which is, I think, the elephant with capitalism painted on its rump. Uh, I thought you because, might get there eventually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so in, in the UK, you know, we've just, uh, we as an electorate have emphatically rejected a socialist um, uh, government, a party in, in, in Corbyn's Labour doesn't Party. That, doesn't that seem quite a long time ago? It does seem like a while ago <laughs> now. It seems like a faintly different world, doesn't it? Um, and, you know, capitalism seemed in uh, seemed here to, here to stay and, and the kind of rarefied uh, neoliberal form of, of capitalism that was being pursued by, by the Tories was seemed like it was inevitably here for a long time. But... Now in the UK, as with lots of other places around the world, the state is bigger than ever, certainly yeah. bigger than it's been since the Second World War. Um, and you've written about capitalism, you've written books about capitalism um, and about how it might be done differently. And I just wanted to sort of see where you thought capitalism was going and particularly with the the overarching challenge of reducing CO2 emissions at something I think at the rate required is about seven and a half percent a year to get yeah. on track for Paris. Um, can capitalism still do that? Can a different form of capitalism do that? Or has COVID re sort of revealed that capitalism's done? <laughs> nice snappy question. Just so that, was, that was a 17 part question. <laughs> if you could answer that in order in very concisely. Um. You gave me that the lead there. Thank you very much. Um, which was the the book was called Capitalism as if the World Mattered, um, and the 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 heart of that book was saying there are so many different variants of capitalism, and at the moment we have just been utterly crushed by a particularly vicious, aggressive, kleptocratic form of capitalism where the lucky one percent of the world's rich suck wealth up from everybody else. We've, we've put up with that for 40 years. And what I said in the book is that that isn't necessarily the version of capitalism. In fact, that version of capitalism absolutely can't deliver a just, sustainable, ultra-low carbon world. Not possible. Not possible. So the, the question for me was, is there a version of capitalism which could deliver that just, compassionate, ultra-low carbon world? And I came to the conclusion that was theoretically possible. And by a version of capitalism, I mean that people would still have choice in markets. They'd look very different because they'd be regulated very differently. People would still be able to pursue profit through their businesses. It would look very different because there would be all sorts of ways of containing that 
insane drive for profitability at the cost of everything else. So I can put the basic constructs of capitalism in a frame and say, would that, would that particular feature of capitalism be possible within a just, compassionate, low-carbon world? Almost all of them can, apart from capital accumulation itself. And that is the process by which the already super-privileged and super-rich are able to use that pre-existing wealth to go on acquiring more and more capital every year. That is not compatible with any form of protecting the planet and people. So that bit would have to go. Now, the truth is, to answer your question, once you do all of those changes to capitalism, a lot of people would say, that's not capitalism. That's something very different indeed. But that's a political choice that we're still going to have to make. And I still think that is, yeah, I still think that's available to us. your book one of the things you argue which i know you've argued through your career is that is that climate change is not and it annoys you when it is portrayed as an environmental issue um i mean it is right like uh from a point of view of there's 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 an environment what is nosed but what did you what did you mean by that and i'm i guess it's a follow-up question to that kind of how do you how do you take climate change and take it out of people seeing it as being just about polar bears and yeah you know and, and, and hot things um and is do we need to do more of that in order to win for whatever that means we certainly we certainly do but you're right it has always bugged me and i tell you why it's bugged me because i know that as soon as you stick the environmental label on something very large numbers of people in our political system both sides of the spectrum by the way this is not just getting at the right now. The left have done this consistently over decades as well, I'm sorry to say. Um, they say, okay, it's an environmental problem. Then we don't really have to bother about that because we've got laws and we've got an environment department and we've got all sorts of ways of managing these environmental impacts. And that's sorted. That's a pigeonhole. I don't, I'm not interested in personally, so I'm going to leave that to other people to sort out. Whereas if you acknowledge that climate change, in fact, is the biggest single challenge to the way we create and distribute wealth, and in fact, the biggest single challenge to our concept of progress itself, so you shift it into a macroeconomic and then a philosophical place, then obviously it's a completely different story because then everybody has to come to terms with what climate change tells us about the idiocy of our current wealth creation systems. And climate change tells us about the idiocy of our current philosophical understanding of ourself and our relationship with this planet. So if we can do that bit of it, then we're going to get greater, deeper understanding on the part of people to address these things um, differently. So you're right. I continue to fight back against that. Although, you, yes, you're also right. It will have a big impact on our environment, that's for sure. Yeah. Do you think that so there is a new generation of campaigners out there we talked about it at the start of the interview you know younger people coming through and challenging things do you think they more instinctively get the idea that climate change is going to seriously mess up like everything about the future 
not just whether or not there's a polar bear. Do you think it's it, it, the, the next generation of campaigners gets that a bit more than perhaps Ol and I might have when we started out? I think so. Um, I'm a bit cautious in just doing my usual thing, which is saying, yes, of course, Dave, obviously they do. Um, it isn't quite as simple as that. And I know I'm in a slightly odd um, position because I am, as I mentioned to you before, I'm lucky enough to be spending quite a lot of time with young climate campaigners who are, who are bringing forward different ways of, of pursuing these campaigns, different ways of engaging and empowering young people. And, and for me, that is immensely exciting. But I know that's not necessarily representative of the, an entire generation or different generations. But for me, when I, when I push back on you about the COVID-19 being the epicenter of my um, hopefulness, the reason why I said that is that actually the real heart of my hopefulness is this sense of what young people were able to achieve through 2019. And I'm just still watching that as a phenomenon, starting in autumn 2018 with a single young woman outside the Swedish parliament, Greta Thunberg's school strike, and growing to a movement that got 7 million young people onto the streets of cities all around the world in slightly more than a year. I mean, there's never, this is an astonishing thing. We've sort of we've kind of forgotten that all that stuff was going on in 2019. And it was utterly remarkable. And for me, the young people's part in that was even more significant than XR. Although XR, Extinction Rebellion, were setting some new guidelines about the nature of campaigning that we were going to need. But this readiness on the part of young people to become um, disobedient climate campaigners, because don't forget, when you don't go to school, you are actually breaking the law. You are technically in breach of your responsibilities and your parents are technically in breach of their responsibilities. So I took that little seed and I just said, wow, what happens when we have hundreds of thousands, millions of young people around the world who've suddenly found that they need to break the law in order to get their voice heard? I don't think that goes away. I don't think young people are suddenly going to get to the age of 22, 23, and say, oh, God, there's the greasy pole of my future career. Well, just put that sort of campaigning stuff I did when I was 18, put that down as a youthful indiscretion. You know, it doesn't really matter any longer. Yes. I don't Chuck think another tar in a barbecue. Yeah. Exactly. I think we're, I'm, I'm hugely interested in what this means. And that's why this, this sort of shift in the political centre is critical to me, because I think we're going to see more and more young people, not in the middle of the COVID stuff, that's impossible. But after that, coming to the fore again and simply saying to their politicians, this is insupportable. You are basically condemning us to a life, not just of total disruption, but actually complete devastation. And we're not going to put up with this. We're just not going to put up with it. So that becomes my reason, if you like, to to see how us oldies, sorry, me, old, old I'm not referring Dave, to you two, yeah, you two obviously. No, Dave's quite old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I have to use these generational things very carefully. Um, how people as old as myself can actually usefully think of ways of working very um, positively with that energy in society. But isn't everybody, I've uh, stewed up some lentils and seaweed as a sort of uh, last positive action. Can I just read out a, a question one of our listeners uh, sent in? 
which is on a very similar theme to what you were just talking about, but I, uh, I'm interested to see what, what, what your response is. So it's uh, a listener called Steve who wrote, I was given Jonathan's book, Captain Eco and the Fate of the Earth as a six or seven year old, which probably <laughs> was a big factor in the past my life has taken somehow or other. In it, there was an insert telling us, telling us kids that we had to speak up because Rio Summit was coming up and adults listened to kids. Would Jonathan make a similar book these days? And does he think that the youth movement is actually making a difference this time? So that's that's the question. And I guess, you know, it, it's subtly different to what we were just talking about in that, you know, do are kids doing this so that adults listen to them? Or is it kind of less and less about the adults? Good question. I don't, I, it can't unfortunately be less about the adults because the Bloody adults are just sitting around not doing Still the things there. they should be doing. I'm sorry, <laughs> they're filling the space. They're blocking the reforms that we need. They're stopping the solutions being rolled out. So young people can't make this happen entirely through their own forceful vigour and young energy. It's got to be directed at shifting that political incumbency that literally has a stranglehold around all of the institutions that we need to move. Their, their passion, their, sometimes their anger, their concern about the world that awaits them has still got to be focused politically because otherwise it will miss the mark. So when I wrote Captain Eco, um, and yeah, 1992, it's uh, sitting up there on a shelf behind me. I was wondering if I could find a copy to show your viewers, but uh, forget it, be too much of a disruption. And when I wrote that, the ask was relatively small. I, indeed, the ask was right in to the politicians who are going to be attending the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992 and tell them what you think should be happening. And we did get a million people around the world to write back to that and, and another campaign um, that I was involved in called Save the Earth. Um, That's to, pretty cool. I mean, pre, pre-internet, pre-social yeah, no, media. Exactly. <laughs> Get a million people I was doing thinking that. about that the other day. Everything came back on little bits of paper. <laughs> Seriously, that's amazing. And wow. um, and we had an amazing um, location at the Earth Summit where all every single one of these little bits of paper were um, pinned up on trellises with the tree of life rising up in the middle of it. So, but it was a very modest ask. It wasn't anything like the kind of stuff I'm, I'm suggesting is necessary now. 1992, we still had reasonable hope that politicians had enough sense to do what had to be done. And bit by bit, that has just oh. eroded away. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Those are the days. The most pressing task which faces us at the international level is to negotiate a framework convention on climate change. So we normally end interviews with learned and august people by asking them if they are hopeful and optimistic. But you've done that. Um, so I wanted to ask you instead, by means of wrapping up, kind of what you have learned about people in your time doing what you're doing. Do you think people, do you have a faith in humanity and a faith in people? Um, and what's the best way of mobilising that if you do have it? Yeah. That is the crunch question, to be honest. And it's the answer to that question is what determines your sense of what the future looks like. And I, my life started with 10 years as a teacher in a comprehensive in West London. 
And that has been a foundational experience for me because I, I, I started with a position that said basically human beings are, are good and want to do the right thing and care for each other and themselves and their communities and so on. And it's only when we misorganize or organize ourselves so badly in society and our economies that that goes wrong and human nature then often turns in on itself and becomes much more aggressive and selfish and short-termist and all the rest of it. I am still absolutely convinced that human nature is, in essence, good and that given half a chance and good education, good grounding, the right environment, the right opportunities for people from the youngest point of their lives, that people will grow up and, and be proud of doing the right thing for their families, for their communities, for the planet and so on. Absolutely passionate about that. And without that, if we, unless you do veer on that side of, of human nature, as in essentially good rather than essentially bad, very hard to track out a future for humankind. So I'm still in that place. It still matters to me enormously. And it's why education is basically what I'm still doing, in essence, you know. So there we go. Is that august and learned enough for you? It's, it's more august and learned than I'm used to, that's for sure. So I'll tell Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for, well, for everything, to be honest. As Dave said, um, you know, you are the reason he took up the environmental uh, whatever mantra. Um, and you're the reason that lots of people did. And uh, I've seen you speak and, um, you know, engaged with your writing uh, for a long time. And it's never been anything but profoundly inspirational and and hopeful and energizing and we need you so thank you for doing all that and uh and thank you also for coming and talking to us pair of idiots uh about, about your new book just uh so the the book is out in a couple of days 26th of june something like, like 25th, that, that yeah right? 25th um and um remind people what it's called and uh where would you like them to buy it it's called Hope in Hell. It's published by Simon and & Schuster. And I seriously hope you can order it from your nearest local bookshop. Actually, what I really hope is, this, we're recording this a little bit ahead of launch date, but what I really hope is the bookshops by then will be open and then we can enjoy the experience of being in a bookshop again. There we go, Dave. There is there the teacher, the teacher that you nearly were taught by, but in a twist of fate, ended up learning more from than you might otherwise have done in school. That was a rare pleasure. Do you reckon one day, when we're a bit older, do you reckon one day people will treat us as gods? <laughs> ask and ask us uh, to justify why it is they're so brilliant. Do you think that's going to happen? I mean, I mean <laughs> let's, let's not, I suppose, let's not rule anything out at this point. No, that's true. That's true. We um, might all be worshipping rocks as gods in a few years' time, so who knows? Yeah. It's, and look, you know, we are at earlier points in our, our lives and careers than Jonathan is, so there is still time, but it strikes me as unlikely that we're going to achieve quite what he has achieved or inspire quite so many people. But you never know, Dave. Um, 
Yeah, they'll play I, that. They'll I, play I, that clip back on when we're both when we're both knighted. They'll yeah. play that clip <laughs> in the news. So that is just about all we got time for, really. LOL. Lovely though it would be to talk to both Jonathan and you for the rest of the evening. People have got homes to go to if they're not already in them, which they probably are. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, yes, thank you as ever to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts, ends, intertwinkles this podcast. Thank you to Arthur Stovall for the logo. What logo? What adorns it? Thank you to you all for looking so pretty down the end of my intertubes, and thank you, of course, to Jonathan for coming on here and being wise and cool. Absolutely. If you would like to get in touch with the podcast, uh, tell us what you think. Tell us who we should interview next. Uh, you can email us at hello at sustainababble.fish. You can tweet us at the Babble Wagon. You can just search Facebook for Sustainable. And if even better, you want to give us some cash to help us keep doing what we do, uh, then bung us the price of a cup of coffee or a pint at Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Sustainable. Thank you very much to the people who do. We love you. We really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. Superb stuff. Right, all. Oh, is that it? Have you done the things? We've done I the think, things. I think so. Uh, done all the things. G- give us a nice rating on iTunes. Tell other people about the podcast. That's important. Tell other people about the podcast. Tell them that they can go and listen to not only Jonathan, but other luminaries of the Green Movement like Caroline Lucas, Molly Scott Cato. Who else impressive have we spoken to? Kate Rayworth, she was great. Vigar, Cregan Reedy was brilliant. Uh, yeah. Yes, all right. I'll, yes, yes. You know, do other people stuff. Are, We've done other, other interviews is the point. There are other yeah. episodes. Tell people to go and listen to them. Chris Packham. We talked to that. Chris oh, Packham. Oh, yeah. That was great. Oh, yeah. Right, good. I'm off uh, to count my lucky stars that I read a book when I was 16. How about that? <laughs> and not one since. <laughs> all right, bye. Bye. I should show you at this point my spectacularly useless wildflower meadow. Um, talk, talking about, I, I, I may Dave, challenge that's you. That's a cat it, litter. That's a cat litter. <laughs> you've got it's, it's, it's growing, and I'm just about keeping it alive.